Let me invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. Romans 6, 15. <laughs> now that would be my granddaughter. Uh, What then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed." And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the promise of illuminating our minds, our hearts, moving our wills. And Father, may you indeed be glorified to meet each and every individual at their point of need. For some, it may be salvation. For others, it may be your children that need encouraged, need corrected even, uh, need lifted up. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what we just read was the third uh, section in Romans chapter 6. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 11, uh, Paul identifies uh, our union in Christ, verse 12 through 14. There's the, uh, the implication of our union in Christ. And then 15 uh, through 23, he would talk about our slavery, our slavery as those that are in Christ. And what we're going to look at today is verse 17. It's in the middle of this third section. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. As we read our Bibles, and I know that you do this, as you read your Bibles, and the seasons of life that you go through, there are certain times that you gravitate towards special, special portions. There are times that uh, you will go to the, the, the run-to portions to hide and to find comfort and to find, uh, uh, to find the Lord himself. I want to read to you some of those very uh, favorite passages, and I know that every one of you will be able to affirm in your heart that, yes, I have, I have found myself hiding in these places during times of great turmoil, times of great uh, discouragement. For instance, Psalm 23, who has, not, who has not run to the shepherd in times of fear, in times of being afraid. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And who has not run to Psalm 103 when you feel the accusations of the devil reminding you of your many sins, of your many failings of the Lord. And you would read in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And then when you're facing you know, challenges and you need to make decisions, and you're thinking about life, who is not camped out in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5, And six, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And what about the weary saint that when you feel you can't go on another day and that you're overwhelmed with life who has not run and found great comfort in Isaiah 40. Verse 27, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Wasn't that a beautiful hymn we just sang about? As goes your day, so goes your strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And it's not just the Old Testament we find ourselves as saints having these favorite portions of Scripture that we've memorized, that in the midst of many tears and sleepless nights, we've either held our Bibles close to our chest or we have just memorized those verses and and find ourselves with trembling even to quote these wonderful passages of Scripture that bring us to the point of comfort and of peace. Because it also carries over in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And tell me, believer, that when life has bottomed out, have you not run to the end of Romans 8 and found yourself uh, there resting in the sovereignty of God? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And what brother or sister here who has gone through the darkness of a lack of assurance of salvation has not found the balm of Gilead in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9? 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then finally, though really not finally, there's so many more passages of Scripture that stand out with great force in comforting you, who has not attended the funeral of a loved one, and stood over a, a, freshly, a freshly dug grave and looked down and heard these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This may be somewhat of a unique introduction to the sermon. I almost decided I'm just going to read the Bible for the next 50 minutes, which would be fine. But these are, these are portions of scriptures that we've all found to be a great comfort. But there's also specific verses, singular verses, that have come to us with, with, with shouts even of comfort. For instance, the I Am statements of Jesus. Who has not feasted on the I am statements of Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what about John 1.14, which I think is one of the great Christmas scriptures. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, reminding us that we walk with a living God. And we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the Bible captured in one verse. Likely the most famous of all Bible verses, John 3.16. When you have nothing else to, to say or, or you're so hurting in the, in the affairs of life, uh, you can run to John 3.16. If you can't say it because of your pain, you can read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so I say all that to come to this, Romans 6, 17, one verse, one verse. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. One verse, but yet so much in one verse. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said this of Romans 6, 17, quote, We come here to one of the great striking and outstanding verses in the Bible. I venture to say that it is one of the most important and pivotal verses. That is so because it contains one of the clearest definitions found in the New Testament as to what exactly it means to be a Christian. End quote. Last week we looked at Romans 6, verse 15 and 16, which was the beginning of the last section of Romans 6. And in verses 15 and 16, Paul laid down a general principle of slavery a general principle of slavery, where he would say that everyone is a slave. And that he wasn't specific. He says, you are either in one of the two humanities. Uh, You're either in Adam and you're a slave to sin, or you are in Christ and you are a slave to righteousness or a slave uh, to Christ. But what I want to do before we look at verse 17 is I want to make a clarification from what I said last week because it's so important. I'd mentioned that every, every slave 
that whether you're an Adam or in Christ, a slave is bought. That's only true if you're in Christ. You were bought with a price. Satan didn't buy you. There is no exchange between God and Satan. There is none of that. There is some people that believe that. That's not true. There's a transaction between the Father and the Son in the covenant of redemption. You are bought with a price, but you, Satan didn't buy you. You were already captive to him. By birth and by being an Adam, you're already captive. So I don't want you to think that there's this transaction between Satan and God. Uh, Satan doesn't buy you as a slave. He already owns you as a slave. And that's by virtue of, of birth. So at any rate, um, let's go to look at verse 17. And in verse 17, Paul goes from the the generic or the general to the specific. Now he is talking directly to the true believers. He's already had these rhetorical questionnaires uh, that's passed uh, through numerous chapters of Romans uh, 3 through 6 about those, the crowd that would say, well, let's just have uh, grace and have sin so that grace may abound. And Paul, as I said last week, Paul would look at them and say, you're out of your mind. You can't do that. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a contradiction of the highest form of contradiction. You cannot be in a state of grace and a state of habitual sin simultaneously. And so Paul now in verse 17, he is but. But thanks be to God that you, so he is separating now those who would believe in an easy believism, which is no believism, they, those that, that would be uh, uh, proponents of cheap grace, which there is no such thing, he's now directing to the believing uh, Romans and to us. And what he is telling us in verse 17 is really, and I agree with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, is we have the whole of the Christian life in verse 17. Because if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a whole Christian. You're going to be a whole Christian, and that includes every bit of your being. That includes your will, that includes your heart, and that includes your mind. And what we have in verse 17, then, is the slave of Christ defined. It's defined. And as you look at verse 17, you're going to see the whole of the person. You're going to see first the attitude that is to permeate the Christian life, and that is the giving of thanks. Notice what he says. The very first thing that Paul would say is, but thanks be to God. I don't want you to lose the, the, the force in what he's saying here. And I'll emphasize that here in a minute. But we see that the attitude of the Christian life is to be one of thanksgiving. The next thing we see that he would say that you were once slaves of sin, you have become. So he looks back and says, you were this, but now you're this. So then there's not only the attitude of the Christian, but there is the change of the person as a Christian. There is indeed a radicalness about becoming a Christian. And the next thing he would say is if you look at the, at the latter part of verse 17, that you become what? Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. And so now he's talking about lifestyle. A lifestyle that will encompass the will, the heart, and the mind. We are obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Teaching instructs the mind. You obey from the will to which you were committed. Let's take a look and break down these areas then that define the whole of the Christian life. And I hope that this will help you understand that when Jesus Christ bought you, he bought all of you. 
And that the radical nature of the new birth is such that you were, now you are. And we have here the controlling attitude of the Christian is that of thanksgiving. Paul would say, but thanks be to God. This was modeled so much by the Apostle Paul. And do you know that giving of thanks is to be the dominant characteristic in the Christian? Is that we are to be a people of over-the-top thanksgiving? Is it there's not a day that goes by and throughout the day that our lives are not oozing with thanksgiving? I've listed all the occasions in, the, in your outline there where Paul would say this in his letters. Ten of thirteen letters, he would, he would start out with giving thanks. Giving thanks to God. And notice what's extremely important about this. He gives thanks to God for other Christians. And so I would even challenge you right now as a Christian. Number one, is the, is the dominant characteristic in your life from your heart one of thanksgiving? Or is it one of complaining? Paul was saying in the Philippian letter, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In the Thessalonian letters, we give thanks to God always for you. To Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you. And that's only three of the ten. Here in Romans, the very first thing he says about these, uh, these believers is he gave thanks for them. And he also said that in the opening chapter in verse 8. This is worthy. This is enough for, for today. We could quit right now and have the Lord's Supper. Is to, is to ask yourself, do you live, do I live in a spirit of thanksgiving? And by the way, Jerry Bridges said this. He said this in, in one of his books. I think it was Transforming Grace. Is he said this. He says, the giving of thanks is not natural to the natural man. Think about it. And so as a Christian then, if, if, the, if the dominant characteristic is that of giving thanks, then it, must, it behooves us to ask the question, am I a thankful person? Do I live in the spirit of thanksgiving? And I want to give you three applications. I didn't include them, but you might want to write these down. And I promise to talk very slow because I'm tired. And so, but here's the first one. Giving of thanks is to be a regular part of our prayers. Giving of thanks. And here it is. A regular part of your prayers is giving thanks for other Christians. Friends, we don't travel this journey alone. And so, have you recently thanked God for the Christians in your life? Thank God for your church. Thank God for those people in your life that are, that are influencing you. Now, I'm, I'm going to stress this in, in a minute, why this is so important. And I would have you turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If I was to ask you, how do we do anything for the Lord? You would immediately tell me, by His Spirit. And you would tell me that it is the spirit-filled Christian that knows the fruit of the spirit, fruit of the uh, spirit Christian will, ex will exhibit those fruit. And you would tell me that everything that we do is in the power of his spirit. That means you must be a spirit-filled and a spirit-controlled Christian. And you would agree with that. How do I know? How do I know? How would my wife know if I am a spirit-filled Christian and a spirit-controlled Christian? It would be manifested in, in multiple ways, but one way in particular, in the attitude both of the heart and in my lips of thanksgiving. 
Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Here's the imperative, be filled with the Spirit. Well then, how do I know that I'm filled with the Spirit, as I mentioned? Well, he's going to give you, in verses 19 to 20, he's going to give you evidence of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's other ways. We know in the early church that they were filled with the Spirit and they spoke the Word of God in boldness. We know that. But let's just keep it confined to these because if, just because you speak the Word uh, with boldness doesn't mean you're filled with the Spirit because you can speak the Word with boldness and it could be arrogance. Is you got to be careful that Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, this is about relationships. And Paul is telling the Ephesians and us that if you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit, it won't be by using some extraordinary gift or it won't be some extraordinary experience. He says, now those are important, the use of the gifts. But what he's saying, this is what is the mark of a Spirit-filled person. He says, look, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now look at verse 20. Giving thanks, always. So Paul was a spirit-filled man. Paul was a spirit-controlled man. How do I know that? Because in in over 75% of his letters to individuals and to churches, he was filled with the spirit of thanksgiving. And friends, if we are going to be this whole being Christian, then one thing that should never be known or we should never have the reputation of is this. We should never be known as complainers. Because complaining is the antithesis of of thanksgiving. It is the complete opposite of thanksgiving. And Paul would say, if you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit, then ask yourself, or better yet, ask those people closest to you if you live in the attitude of thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving is the mark is the mark of a spirit-filled Christian. It's also a mark of the Christian. So then we, we know that giving of thanks is to be a regular part of our prayer lives, in particular thank, thankfulness to, for other Christians. And by the way, if you are thankful for other Christians in your life, don't just keep that in your prayer closet. Paul didn't. Paul told other Christians that he was thankful for them. And you do not understand... I should should say, I shouldn't say it that way. We do not understand the power of affirmation. Affirming another believer in the things of the Lord. And in particular, thanksgiving for them and the impact they're having in our lives. Why is Paul so often in his letters very quick to tell them how much he loves them? Tell them how much he, he wants to invest in them? And, and tell them that they, he thanks God for them. I can't imagine getting a letter from the Apostle Paul if I was Philemon. And Paul says, I've heard of your reputation, brother. You're full of love. You're full of faith. And that the saints are refreshed by you. I would say, whoopee, that's awesome. Because when I'm down in the dumps, you know what I need? I need to know, I need to know that, that God is still alive and that God is still working in my life. And, that God, and how does he affirm us? He affirms us by his word, through his spirit. And a part of that is giving thanks for one another. But here's the last thing about this. Is giving of thanks is an act of obedience. Paul would give us 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
You might want to say, well, what is the will of God for me? I can tell you right off the bat, will he give thanks in all things? Because that's what he says. This is the will of God. Give thanks in all things. John Brodus, he was a great Baptist leader. He said, quote, An unthankful and complaining spirit is an abiding sin against God and a cause of almost continual unhappiness. And yet how common such a spirit is, end quote. And he would go on to say, it's because we have forgotten thankfulness. Now, that's the first thing, is that this whole Christian that Paul's defining in verse 17, the whole Christian, it begins with the attitude, but thanks to God. It's an attitude of thanksgiving. And in my life, I will confess to you, I need to be more thankful. I need to live in a constant state of thanksgiving. I have absolutely no reason not to be. And neither do you. But let's take a look at the second thing. Now let's look at the change. The change that occurs in the Christian uh, or the Christ or Christ's slave. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become. So Paul is reminding now the Romans of what they once were and what they are. He would do the same thing to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he would say, And such were some of you, such were some of you who were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practiced homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, rivalers, swindlers. You were some of these, but you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. So he tells the Corinthians, you were that, now you're this. And he's telling the Romans the same thing. And he's telling us the same thing as well. Friends, you didn't choose to become a Christian. God did something to you to make you a Christian. You had a change. And it wasn't a change that was originated by you in your, in your own power or by your decision. And Paul would say, you were this. You were all the things that I told you the world is like in Romans 1. And now you're this. And what Paul is describing here, without using the words, he's describing the new covenant and the new life and the new birth. What he said in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, walk in newness of life, that's what verse 17 is. You are walking in newness of life. And the newness of life is a, a life of thanksgiving, and a life is recognizing that you have been radically changed by Jesus Christ. And when I talk about this radical change, I don't want you to get discouraged to think that, you know, well, I didn't have this Philippian jailer conversion. I didn't have this uh, Damascus Road experience. Well, not all of us will. Not all of us will have that radicalness, but all of us will go to the same place. All of us will end up at the same place. Is that we will be taken up by the gospel, not that we take up the gospel. The gospel takes us up. And in taking us up, a radical change happens, and it happens from the inside out. And he would tell us here that you were once a slave to sin, which was from the inside out, and it was always sin. He said, but now you've been radically changed that you became a slave of Christ, so there is a change from the inside out. And it's a change from unrighteousness to that of righteousness. And how does that happen? 
It happens because of Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. That is not morality. That is new life. That is new birth. It's not taking up religion. It's being taken up by the gospel. It's being radically changed because of Jesus Christ. And you know it's not of you. Now, you may not be able to define and, and all the details of what happens, but you'll know you're different. And so we then we have that Paul would identify first this whole being of the Christian. Number one, it is a life of thanksgiving. Secondly, it's a life of change. Is that you have been changed. And here's another thing about the change. You can't go back. But not only that, you don't want to go back. With the new heart comes new desires. And with new desires comes new direction. And you look back and you have one regret. Is that if you were later in life when you come to Christ. You have one regret. Why didn't I come sooner? And so we have here then that this. That's why if you profess to be a Christian today. And you don't have this. Everything in your life impacted by your profession of faith, then you need to really question whether or not that change has occurred. And I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. I'm trying to get you to understand that to come to Jesus Christ isn't about just you changing some moral behavior. It's about such a radical change that you look and say, who was that person? I was, I was that. But now I'm this. And only God can affect that change in the life of a, of a being. But let's move on now. What does he say in the rest of the verse? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There's three things here. There's three things under the lifestyle of the Christian or the lifestyle of Christ's slave. And the, the operative word in verse 17 is the word Obedient. Obedient. One word that captures the whole of the Christian life is obedience. And it takes up the whole person, the will, the heart, and the mind, as I mentioned. And let's just work our way through these different aspects of it. He says here that you have become obedient. Okay, if I was to ask you what is required of obedience... You would immediately look at me and say action, an exercise of the will. Obedience has an outward manifestation. It has to. It's an action. But here's the difference between new covenant obedience and the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all external, a form of legalism. The New Testament includes the external, but it originates in the internal. As a result of new birth. And so Paul is going to address. And you have become obedient. That means there has to be an exercise of the will. In obeying the standard of teaching. Or the form of doctrine. That he is telling them that they have. So if you want to know if you're truly a Christian. My question to you would be. How is your life of obedience? And I want to be careful with this. Just because you serve in ministry doesn't necessarily mean that you're obedient. 
Just because you do something, just because I stand here and preach doesn't mean I'm obedient. It's because there's over 51 and other commands that talk about my responsibility to Christians. And so obedience isn't selective. I can't pick and choose. You become obedient to the form of doctrine or you have become obedient to all things that I have commanded you, like Jesus says in the Great Commission. I find it very interesting that this was the dominant theme apart from the gospel of Romans that the Apostle Paul wants to get us to see. In Romans chapter 1, you don't need to turn to it, but in Romans chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, he says that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. And then he would close Romans in chapter 16. In verse 25, he would say that we are preaching the gospel according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. So the Apostle Paul has these bookends in Romans. And the bookends are such as that I've been given this charge to make you obedient. And I'm going to remind you at the end of my, my letter, it's a purpose is for your obedience. Now this is what I, 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 I want to stress this because it's, it's so important And it's a challenge that you face every day because I faced it too. Is that none of you are going to leave here in a half hour and you're going to go out and you're going to commit some heinous crime, some heinous sin. You're not going to do that. Is that you are not going to find yourselves shipwrecking your faith by sins of commission. You're going to lose your joy and you're going to be Lacking peace because of sins of omission. Sins of omission. You say, well, what's that? One of the great dangers you face as a Christian is that you can live life and not live life. You can live life and exercise your daily routines and miss out on the abundant life that Jesus promised. And when I talk about living life, the Christian life is, is, is centered on this, this phrase, that one word, obedience. And obedience does not just happen. Is that you've got to purposely, one, know the commands, the standard of teaching. You've got to only know the commands. You've got to love the God of the commands from the heart. And you've got to exercise your will. I can know the commands. I can feel the warmth of the commands. But if I don't exercise the will and obeying the commands, then I'm not obedient to the commands. And Paul is in, in, in showing us this whole thing. And so I don't want you to think that all is well spiritually if there isn't an aggressive, purposeful act of obedience to God's commands. He's given us this book. And there's a day of judgment coming. Do you know what is interesting about the uh, Olivet Discourse? Is in Matthew chapter 25, we get the final judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats. Do you know how Jesus separates the sheep and the goats? It's by your random yet consistent acts of kindness and love to the least of these. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, when I needed clothes, when I was in prison, and his people... They didn't even know they were doing it. They said, when did we do all that? You know why? 
because obedience was ingrained in their hearts and their minds because they understood that to be captured by Jesus Christ and be a slave of him is that you purposely put into practice the known commands of God himself. And Paul then would tell us that, that we are to be, we are to be these, these people who obey the word. He says that we would obey the standard of teaching. So the obedience here is the will. Ask yourself the question, does my life reflect purposeful acts of obedience to God's commands? Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Uh, pray with one another. I just gave you four. There's like 40 some other ones. The point, the point is, it's, I find it so easy just to go through doing things that may resemble Christianity, but not be Christianity. And Christianity is measured by obedience. Obedience to the God who sent his son who was obedient to the point unto death. But let's move on then. In verse 17, he would also say that it's not only the will, that the Christian life, the slave of Christ, is not only to exercise a will that is obedience, but he says from the heart. Obedience from the heart. And from the heart then, it isn't just to be understood as affections or emotions, though that's certainly part of it. From the heart is the inner self to include personality, inclination, intentions, emotions, conscience. You can be obedient to religion, but not from the heart. You could be here today and be faithful to this church. And that could be a form of obedience. But it's not from the heart. Why? Because of Ezekiel 36. You didn't have the new heart that comes from God, that Christ gave you the heart, whereas you can obey him out of your affections, out of your personality. Remember what John said? His commandments are not burdensome. And if we find obedience to God burdensome, we probably need to ask why. I didn't say they're not wearisome. They are. It's going to cost you a lot to, to obey all these one another commands. But they're not burdens. They, they don't weight you down like, oh, I have to do this. No, not at all. That's what the new heart does. And so Paul would say that it's wholehearted obedience, not only obedience in the exercise of the will, but it's wholehearted obedience uh, from the heart. And Jesus is all about the heart. The greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart to include your mind. And let me ask you, where does Christ dwell in the believer? In the heart. Paul would pray to the Ephesians, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The seed of your affections, the seed of your personality, the seed of your very being. Thomas Manton said, quote, It is the heart where Christ dwells, not in the ear, tongue, or brain. Till he takes possession of the heart, all is as nothing, end quote. Do you see that the whole of the Christian life, Christian, it's everything that you are. It's the will exercise in obedience to known command. It is the heart, the seat of your affections, the seat of your very being, that your obedience is couched from the heart. And the reason why that's so important because we can't worship God acceptably without heart worship. Nor can we be in relationships of love without the heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's the will. And the love comes from the heart, the renewed heart. There was a young son he was, uh, he was the son of the 18th century bishop. 
Bishop of Ireland. His name was George Berkeley. The little boy asked his dad, he said, Papa, he says, what do the words cherubim and seraphim mean? The bishop took time to tell the little questionnaire that cherubim was a Hebrew word meaning knowledge. And the word seraphim stood for flame, explaining that it was commonly supposed that cherubim are angels that excel in knowledge, and seraphim are those who excel in love for God. The little boy pondered for a moment. He looked at his papa and says, Well, papa, I hope that when I die that I will be a seraphim because I'd much rather love God than to know everything. It's a childlike, and it certainly isn't to have theological substance to it. <laughs> but it is, a, it, is, it is the reality is that our Christianity is to be a Christianity of affection. We're to obey God out of a heart that longs to obey God that wants to obey God. And Paul would say that you become obedient, you've exercised the will from the heart. And here's the last one, look what he says. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Where does teaching target? The mind. The mind. Christianity is not anti-intellectualism. I know uh, there, there was that movement early on in the uh, 1900s you know, about liberalism and about the anti-intellectual push uh, on... Christianity is an intellectual faith. Knowledge matters. You have to know. Because, and I've said this before, and it's so true, is that the mind is, is the seat of all learning. And so the mind, when it comes to theology, when it comes to doctrine, mind, it goes in there and it percolates in there. And it moves its way down to the seat of your affections. And you start falling in love with the God of the doctrine and the God of the theology, and then your feet and your hands and your tongue, the will starts exercising what your mind knows, what your heart is inflamed with, and your will goes out to share those things. And so Paul was saying that you have been obedient, you've exercised your will from the heart, the seat of affections, and that the mind has been renewed or the mind has been informed by the standard of teaching or the, uh, the form of doctrine and what was the form of the doctrine that the Romans were, uh, were in recipients of? It was the gospel. He would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also are in Rome. Isn't that kind of odd? It's not, but doesn't it seem odd? We have a tendency to think the gospel is all about getting people saved. It certainly is that. But Paul was saying, I've come to Rome to preach the gospel to you. He's preaching the gospel to believers. Why? Because a believer needs the gospel too. And we need the gospel not just to know about getting saved. We need the gospel because it opens up the treasure chest of the magnificent beauty of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian today, I hope that you will see and you'll study uh, verse 17 in the context of verse 16. And, uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 15 through 23. And you'll see that a slave of Christ is all of you. It's your will. It's your heart. It's your mind. It will be reflected by your attitude of thanksgiving and your lifestyle. Your lifestyle or your conduct will be that of obedience. It'll be heartfelt obedience. It'll be informed obedience by truth. And it'll be felt and influential obedience by the exercise of your will. May God help us to see. May God help us to see that a, that a thirst for knowledge will lead to a thirst for the living word. Lord Jesus. 
that we would fall deeply in love with him and that our will, our mind, and our heart would reflect obedience because of that. We're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper now. And so, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love and thank you for uh, this truth. And Lord, please make us whole Christians, our wills, our hearts, our minds, obedient from the heart to the teaching that you've given us. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.